Concerned about the working conditions of children in the United Kingdom, Michael Sadler, a member of Parliament, held hearings on children being employed in the textile industry in England. His report was released in 1832. The following are excerpts from that report. Thomas Sadler, Esquire. In the chair, Mr. Matthew Crabtree. Called in and examined. What is your occupation? A blanket manufacturer. Have you ever been employed in a factory? Yes. At what age did you first go to work in one? Eight. How long did you continue in that occupation? Four years. Will you state the hours of labor at the period when you first went to the factory in ordinary times? From six in the morning to eight at night. Fourteen hours? Yes. With what intervals for refreshment and rest? An hour at noon. Then you had no resting time allowed in which to take your breakfast, or what is in Yorkshire called your drinking? No. When trade was brisk, what were your hours? From five in the morning to nine in the evening. Sixteen hours? Yes. How far did you live from the mill? About two miles. During those long hours of labor, could you be punctual? How did you awake? I seldom did awake spontaneously. I was most generally awoke or lifted out of bed, sometimes asleep, by me parents. Were you always in time? No. What was the consequence if you had been too late? I was most commonly beaten. Severely? Very severely, I thought. In whose factory was this? Messrs. Hagen Cooks of Dewsbury. Will you state the effect that those long hours had upon the state of your health and feelings? I was, when working those long hours, commonly very fatigued at night when I left my work, so much so that I sometimes should have slept as I walked if I had not stumbled and started awake again, and so sick often that I could not eat, and what I did eat I vomited. Did this labor destroy your appetite? It did. In what situation were you at the mill? I was a peacener. Will you state to this committee whether peacening is a very laborious employment for children or not? Peaceners are continually running to and fro and on their feet the whole day. Do you not think, from your own experience, that the speed of the machinery is so calculated as to demand the utmost exertions of a child supposing the hours were moderate? It is as much as they could do at the best. They are always upon the stretch, and it is commonly very difficult to keep up with their work. State the condition of the children toward the latter part of the day, who have thus to keep up with the machinery. It is as much as they do when they are not very much fatigued to keep up with their work. And toward the close of the day, when they come to be more fatigued, they cannot keep up with it very well. And the consequence is that they are beaten to spur them on. Were you beaten under those circumstances? Yes. Frequently? Very frequently. And principally at the latter end of the day? Yes. Does beating, then, principally occur at the latter end of the day when children are exceedingly fatigued? It does at the latter end of the day, and in the morning sometimes, when they are very drowsy and have not got rid of the fatigue of the day before. What were you beaten with, principally? A strap. Anything else? Yes, a stick sometimes. 
and there is a kind of roller which runs on the top of the machine called a billy, perhaps two or three yards in length, and perhaps an inch and a half or more in diameter. The circumference would be four or five inches. I cannot speak exactly. Were you beaten with that instrument? Yes. Have you yourself been beaten? And have you seen other children struck severely with that roller? I have been struck very severely with it myself, so much so as to knock me down, and I have seen other children have their heads broken with it. You think that it is a general practice to beat the children with that roller? It is. In those mills, is chastisement toward the latter part of the day going on perpetually? Perpetually. Had you any time to be with your parents and to receive instruction from them? No. What did you do? All that we did when we got home was to get the little bit of supper that was provided for us and go to bed immediately. And if you had been late, were you under the apprehension of being cruelly beaten? I generally was beaten when I happened to be late, and when I got up in the morning, the apprehension of that was so great that I used to run and cry all the way as I went to the mill. Thomas Bennett called in and examined. Where do you reside? At Dewsbury. What is your business? A slubber. What age are you? About forty-eight. Have you had much experience regarding the working of children in factories? Yes, about twenty-seven years. What were your regular hours? Our regular hours, when we were not so throng, was from six to seven. And when you were the throngest, what were your hours then? From five to nine, and from five to ten, and from four to nine. Seventeen hours? Yes. What intervals for meals had the children at that period? Two hours. An hour for breakfast and an hour for dinner. Did they always allow two hours for meal at Mr. Halley's? Yes, it was allowed, but the children did not get it, for they had business to do at that time, such as fiddling and cleaning the machinery. But they did not stop in at that time, did they? They all had their share of the cleaning and other work to do. That is, they were cleaning the machinery. Cleaning the machinery at the time of dinner. Were your children working under you then? Yes, two of them. State the effect upon your children. Of a morning when they have been so fast asleep that I have had to go upstairs and lift them out of bed and have heard them crying with the feelings of a parent, I have been much affected by it. Were they not much fatigued at the termination of such a day's labor as that? Yes, many a time I have seen their hands moving while they have been nodding, almost asleep. They have been doing their business almost mechanically. Will you state what effect it had upon your children at the end of their day's work? At the end of their day's work, when they have come home, instead of taking their vittles, they have dropped asleep with the vittles in their hands. And sometimes when we have sent them to bed with a little bread or something to eat in their hand, I have found it in their bed the next morning. This is episode 26. We're halfway through the podcast, and we finally made it. It's time for the Industrial Revolution. 
We've seen the British economy from its collapse in the 4th century when the Romans withdrew from Britain, and the Britons struggle with a largely cashless economy and how, in this environment, the peculiar conventions of feudalism, in which most people in society were tied to their lord in a long chain that went from the serf all the way up the feudal hierarchy to the king. It can be argued that it made sense at the time for serfs to bind themselves to the land in order to gain the protection of their lord. Ever so slowly, we saw the growth of the English economy. Their economy back then was a land-based economy. An English noble's wealth was judged in terms of how much land he had. Again, this made sense in an economy where there was little coinage. We saw how English towns were small, but generation after generation, English workers and craftsmen grew the English national wealth by building ever more houses, furniture, carts, cookware, and all the everyday goods that allow poor citizens to rise into the middle class. By the 19th century, the Crown had established a mint in London, and England was back on the path to becoming a cash economy again. Merchants, craftsmen, and traders grew throughout the later Dark Ages and into the Middle Ages after William the Conqueror ruled a united England in 1066. The growth of towns, which had been steady in the Dark Ages, accelerated throughout the Middle Ages. By the end of the medieval period, then, the English economy was completely different from the Dark Age feudal economy of the Anglo-Saxon period. Larger intercountry and international trading networks had been established. Cities had grown considerably. By 1700, London had a population of perhaps 600,000. By now, we're well into the colonial period. As we've mentioned, the English government was very involved in trade. Economic thinking on the verge of the Industrial Revolution was mercantilist. That is, the English government believed that there was a finite amount of wealth in the world and the wealth was represented by all of the gold and silver that there was in the world. The way for a country, or for that matter, a company or an individual, to become wealthy was to amass more gold and silver. World economies, then, were a zero-sum game to the English. The more gold and silver they accumulated, by necessity, meant that other countries had less wealth, that is, gold and silver and the more gold and silver that other countries had meant the less wealth that England would be able to accumulate. This was, of course, completely wrong, but no one knew it at the time. Think of the wealth of a country as all the property, businesses, goods, and services available in the country at any particular time. It's these things that can be used to enhance the lives of people in the country. These are the things that make your and my lives better, and are truly the wealth of a nation. Money is not a tangible thing that can make your life better in and of itself. It is only of benefit to you if you use it either to purchase something that will make your life better, or perhaps to save and invest so that you have it at a later date, so you can then use it to purchase something that can make your life better. The English didn't have this insight on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. But what they would soon have is Adam Smith, who would change everybody's thinking on how the economy works. 
No matter who's telling it, the story of the Industrial Revolution almost always begins near Staffordshire, England in 1712. Thomas Newcomen had a problem. The English economy was really taking off, and it was powered largely by coal. England had a lot of coal deposits, and mining them was very lucrative. But once a mine was dug down as far as the water table, the mine would generally fill up with water and would be worthless thereafter. Horse-drawn water pumps had been designed that were effective in removing water up to a level of 90 feet, but were not effective beyond that. Newcomen, a blacksmith, wanted to invent a pump that would go significantly beyond that. He worked on his invention for 10 years. Steam engines had been used before, but they were mostly novelties. They had not been put to good practical use yet. Finally, Newcomen came up with the first functioning steam engine in 1712, and it proved very successful in pumping significantly more water out of coal mines than previous horse-drawn pumps. Mines all over England began using this method of pumping. By 1776, there would be about 600 Newcomen steam engines in use in England. With Newcomen's engine, the value of steam power was clear which led a self-educated scientist and inventor, James Watt, to team up with an investor and entrepreneur, Matthew Bolton. Newcomen's steam engine design wasn't very efficient. Watt and Bolton wanted to improve on that design so they could make a steam engine that would be practical for industrial purposes, which Watt did, and he patented his engine in 1769. Watt's steam engine was then used in the Soho Manufactory one of the first industrial manufacturing facilities. This allowed the Soho manufacturer to begin fabricating goods on a mass scale for the first time. At this point, the cat was out of the bag. The English knew the benefits of steam power now, and they began using it throughout the economy to revolutionize energy, production, and, crucially, distribution and travel. Perhaps the most important use of steam power in the British economy was transportation. The English economy had changed almost unrecognizably since Dark Age Britain. But transportation hadn't really changed all that much. There was a much better road system on the verge of the Industrial Revolution, but it would still take you just about as long to get from Stamford Bridge to Hastings as it had taken in the days of William the Conqueror. Transporting goods over land was slow and very expensive. England did have some canals by this time which made transporting goods much more inexpensive in those areas. The Welsh ironworks in Penny Darren, Wales, needed to transport the heavy iron it manufactured to a canal that was nine miles from the foundry. They contracted British inventor and mining engineer Richard Trevithick to help them with this. To solve their problem, Trevithick used a steam-powered engine to power a locomotive and built a cast-iron rail system nine miles to the canal in 1802. Trevithick's locomotive turned out to be far too heavy for the rails and ended up breaking them after a few trips. But Trevithick proved that it could be done, and steam-powered locomotives began to be constructed elsewhere. This required a massive capital investment initially, but once the locomotive was constructed and the rails were laid, the price to transport goods across England dropped to a fraction of their previous cost. By 1844, England was crisscrossed by railways, north to south, east to west, 
Now goods could be transported to distant locations that had previously cost too much to be cost-efficient. England was an island, surrounded by an ocean, which had eased the cost of transporting goods to some degree, as goods manufactured in the coastal city of Liverpool could be transported by sail to, say, Cardiff, a southern England coastal town, by water, which was cost-effective. The cost of transporting goods in the much larger United States was an even greater problem as North America was a continent and had vast distances to transport goods. Transporting goods down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers was easy enough, but it was too difficult to transport goods back up the river against the current, so inland economic development was hampered during the 18th century. Then, in 1807, Robert Fulton harnessed the power of the steam engine to power a riverboat that changed everything for inland navigation in America and opened up the inland of America to economic development. Again, the cat was out of the bag for sailing, and in 1819, an early steam-powered ocean liner made the first transatlantic crossing. The English textile industry was transforming itself this time, too. Weaving cloth had always been a time-consuming process. It involved passing a shuttle by hand through the weaving loom with every weave of the thread. As there were hundreds, if not thousands, of weaves in every cloth that was woven, this was a very time-consuming process. Then, in 1733, John Kay, from Lancashire, England, developed the flying shuttle, which allowed the weaver to shoot the shuttle through the loom whenever the weaver jerked the cord it was attached to. This allowed weavers to weave several times more cloth in the same time, as well as weaving much broader cloth than they had been able to before. This brought about a great surge in the amount of cloth that was being woven, which led to another problem. All of the thread used for weaving in England ever since the Dark Ages was spun by hand, but now weavers were using thread faster than it could be spun by hand. And there was a thread shortage. Again, British inventor James Hargraves solved the problem in 1770. Before Hargraves, it took six spinners to supply one weaver. Now, with the Hargraves spinning jenny, one worker could operate a machine with 120 spindles. That is, a machine that spun 120 threads at the same time. Now one spinner could supply eight weavers. The thread shortage was over. With the spinning jenny and the flying shuttle, the production of English cloth expanded exponentially. By the 1790s, England was beginning to see the first steam-driven textile mills. During this time, workers in the textile industry moved largely from home-based spinning and weaving operations to the world's first mass production facilities. The first commonly accepted mass production factory was established by Richard Arkwright in Cromford, England, after he had patented the spinning frame in 1769, which used a water wheel to power his cotton spinner. Spinning could now be done on a mass production basis as human power was, for the first time, no longer required to power the cotton spinning process. Over the next 80 years, life in England would be transformed. Other mills would use water power. But as the technology behind steam engines improved, 
England's textile factories were increasingly powered by steam as it moved from the 1790s into the 1800s. In the 150 years from 1700 to 1850, England moved from hand-spun, hand-woven cloth, where peasants would often have one set of work clothes that they would wear until completely worn out because of the long effort that was required to make one set of clothes, to huge, mass mechanized factories, putting out exponentially more fabric than pre-industrial England. Peasants in England now had multiple sets of clothes. All of this, of course, led to an unprecedented demand for cotton to feed this English textile explosion. And where did England get its cotton? From the American South, of course. By 1800, the South's exports of cotton to England had burgeoned to 70,000 bales of cotton. Keep in mind that a bale of cotton weighed between 400 and 500 pounds. That's over 35,000 tons of cotton a year. Sound like a lot? It was. But to understand the increase in the demand for cotton, in 1830, cotton exports had risen to more than 1.3 million bales. And by 1860, on the eve of the Civil War, the South exported more than 4 million bales of cotton to England. That's almost 60 times the amount of cotton the South had exported just 60 years earlier. Yes, this meant a corresponding rise in slavery, but that'll be a podcast of its own. This, of course, brought about a revolution in the clothing worn by the English as it brought the price of fabric down to a level that was affordable, even for the British of very modest means. The incredible increase in fabric that was available in England meant that there was so much more clothing available for the English. We're talking about clothing, and this is the example that's always given of the English Industrial Revolution. This is for good reason, as the textile industry in England went through such an amazing boom. But remember that the British economy was much more than just textiles. Remember the Soho Manufactory and all that it produced? Similar manufacturing plants were springing up throughout England, producing more and more consumer goods on a mass scale, flooding the market with ever-cheaper goods that found their way into the average Britain's household, enhancing their lives and lifting their standard of living. With all this increased commerce, there were, of course, the nouveau riche, the new entrepreneurs, factory owners, etc. But the Industrial Revolution also came with a large and growing middle class. The new factories required mechanics to maintain the machines, a sales force, distributors, all the new goods required new and larger stores, which hired their own set of middle-class employees, etc., etc. All of this led to a much larger middle class than England had ever known. For a good look into this middle-class world of England at this time, read Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. It was published in 1849 at the tail end of the period we're talking about. I think it gives a good feel for what life was like for the average middle-class Briton during this period. The centuries-old mercantilist economic model told us that there was a set of wealth in the world, and it was your job to carve out your share of the already existing wealth. All these new rich industrialists, the huge growth of the middle class, where did all this new wealth come from? 
As I mentioned before, Adam Smith came just at the right time to explain how economies truly work to a country that was about to change the world by entering the world's first industrial revolution. His Wealth of Nations was published in 1776, a year that saw great change in the British Empire. There are few books that change everything. Darwin's On the Origin of Species did this with evolution and how we see the natural world. Sadly, there's not time for it in this podcast. It's not part of our central story. But if you can find time to read it someday, you'll be the better for it. You already know about his theory of evolution. You don't need to read it to learn that. It's worth a read just to see how a first-class mind works. Sadly, our species has had far too few of them. Aristotle, Newton, Darwin, Adam Smith are just a few that fit into the small set, at least in my book. At any rate, Origin of Species is worth a read just to see Darwin's ability to connect disparate observations on the natural world into a detailed and coherent narrative. A skill that far too few of us have. It's a masterful book. So it is with Wealth of Nations. Smith takes you on a journey through 18th century English and Scottish trades, business, and finance, and pulls disparate facts from many corners of Scottish and British commerce. He's able to connect them and paint a picture of the economy of the day that makes great sense if you're patient enough to absorb all the detail he gives you and ties together. You know the broad outlines of his theory. The economy is not a zero-sum game. Unlike the mercantilist notions of his day, Smith showed us that two economic actors can enter into a financial transaction and both can come out ahead financially. He told us about division of labor. He used the example of a nail factory. One person can make a nail by forming the head of the nail, making the shaft, forming the point of the nail, attaching the head to the shaft of the nail, etc. On the other hand, a nail manufacturer may appoint one person to do nothing but make the heads of the nails, another to make the shafts, another to form the points, and still another to assemble everything. In one day, four people individually assembling nails from scratch can make so many nails. However, four employees working as a team that's appointed specialized tasks can make many times more. The division of labor can then increase production of whatever product is being manufactured several fold. This brings up a very important point about Adam Smith. He recognized that division of labor, having each worker do one specialized task over and over again in the production of a product, would lead to significant efficiencies in the production process. Yet he recognized that requiring a worker to go to work and repeat one job over and over all day long would be harmful to the worker's psyche. Smith advocated that employers should therefore take measures to help counteract the deleterious effects of the drudgery of such repetitive work on workers. I've often heard Adam Smith cited as authority for the proposition that capitalism produces losers at the bottom of the food chain and that's just the way it is. This is always, of course, from someone who has not read Adam Smith. Smith's concern for workers is clear in his Wealth of Nations, but comes across even stronger in his other major work, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is too underread today. There's too much in Smith to cover it in depth here, 
but of course we need to mention his concept of the invisible hand that guides the economy. The idea is that if all actors in an economy look out solely for their own interests, the economy will adequately allocate all of the resources available in that economy in an efficient manner. For example, a farmer looking out only for his or her self-interest would sell his or her harvested wheat at the highest price available. A miller, competing for that wheat, would buy the wheat at a price high enough to get the farmer to sell to the miller rather than other millers, but low enough that the miller could still earn a profit. A baker wanting to buy the miller's flour would pay a price high enough to get the miller to sell to that baker, but low enough to be able to make a profit, etc. Since Adam Smith's day, this invisible hand of the market has been studied in painful detail and is vastly better known today. Game theory, for example, which applies to economics, as well as almost any circumstances of human interaction, tells us that people generally act in their individual self-interest and helps to identify what a person's self-interest is in complicated situations. Game theory, in conjunction with chaos theory and systems theory, can tell us much about how economies work. But now we're getting ahead of Adam Smith, who stood on the verge of the Industrial Revolution. If this invisible hand is going to guide the economy then, Smith says, it's crucial that goods be allowed to flow in a free market. This means that governments should stop regulating trade and allow free trade among nations. Scotland can produce very good wine, but it might take growing grapes in greenhouses as they would not do well in the colder Scottish climate. It would therefore be much more expensive to produce wine in Scotland than to import the wine from France. Allow Scotland to import the cheaper French wine, therefore, and you will free up capital that would have gone to grow the more expensive Scottish wine for more productive purposes. There's so much more to Adam Smith that I can't begin to cover it all here. But suffice it to say that Smith taught the entrepreneurs and capitalists of the Industrial Revolution that commerce is not a zero-sum game and that free markets, the free markets that would power the Industrial Revolution that was about to sweep the globe, were necessary for the functioning of a strong economy. And sweep the globe it did. I covered the Industrial Revolution in England, as it was the Brits who started it but it spread throughout Europe to America and even eventually to Japan. The Industrial Revolution would change the lives of people in the countries to which it spread like nothing since the Agricultural Revolution. Again, think of it this way. The wealth of a nation lies in the sum total of goods and services available at any given time. A hundred years after the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, there were vastly more consumer goods and machinery that made its way into English households and businesses. The average English household of 1850 just had vastly more wealth in terms of clothing, durable products, etc., than the average household of 1750, just before the start of the Industrial Revolution. It also had more wealth in terms of savings, because a dynamic economy like the one caused by the Industrial Revolution meant that money circulated significantly more than it did before allowing a hard-working middle class to command much more significant income as well. All of this was causing havoc with the old concept of the great chain of being. Traditionally, 
wealth in England was held by the landed gentry and was seen in terms of property, but land was becoming less and less important to the economy vis-a-vis -vis industry throughout the Industrial Revolution. Steam power had made it to the farm as well, helping to make farming far more efficient. In 1700, 55% of the British population worked in agriculture. By 1850, the figure was 25%. England had always been a very class-oriented society. But with the rise of industrialists and nouveau riche, questions were being asked about traditional roles of who was naturally superior to whom, and the great chain of being was largely being stood on its head. of the wealth of nations. It not only described a modern capitalist economy, just as one was developing in England for the first time, but it allowed businessmen, entrepreneurs, and those in government to understand how to properly chart a course for their economic future. After Smith, people would no longer view the world from the medieval property-based mercantilist perspective. They would view it from a modern capitalist perspective. It's a pleasure to read a thinker like Adam Smith or Charles Darwin. Their ability to synthesize data throughout the English economy, or the natural world as the case may be, and come up with a coherent theory that no one had been able to before is refreshing. We respect thinkers like Smith and Darwin because they were able to change humankind's perspective on the world. They did this because of their ability to understand a large amount of data and see a big picture that no one else had seen before. This is the opposite from how scientists and thinkers are taught to think today. Smith and Darwin were able to see the world from very small to large scales. That is, they were big picture thinkers. Our universities universally teach reductionist thinking today. That is, to think from the large to the small. It is how virtually all scientists view their discipline and, sadly, the basis of far too much historiography of our historians. Don't get me wrong. Reductionism has allowed scientists to make good advances, but it's prevented them from seeing the big picture, from making quantum leaps in science like Darwin. It's time for thinkers to break out of their reductionist cocoons and begin looking at the world expansively like Darwin or Smith. Enough of that. We've now reached the Industrial Revolution and the world will never be the same. It's true. It created incredibly rich industrialists and a large middle class. It lifted so many out of their traditional medieval poverty. Along with what we've called the Second Axis, that is, the change in Western thought that came along with the French philosophes and thinkers like Newton and Locke, society was completely transformed by 1840 or so. I know there are a lot of naysayers out there, but seriously, what could possibly be wrong with that? Oh yeah, what about those at the bottom? Our opening this week was an excerpt from the Sadler Report, written for the English Parliament in 1832. If I've whetted your appetite about child labor in Dickensian England, do an online search for the Sadler Report and read the whole thing. It really makes you wonder. 
How could anyone feel that it was okay to treat society's most vulnerable that barbarically? And it wasn't just a couple industrialists. This was common practice. I keep talking about how society ever so slowly raises itself to ever higher levels of moral standards. And this is true. By the time of the Industrial Revolution, commonly recognized as from 1760 to 1840, watching captured enemies and criminals killed in a coliseum would have been seen as barbaric. Torture, a common form of interrogation in the medieval period, was outlawed, and slavery was outlawed in the British Empire during this period, as were the grisly barbaric blood sports, once so popular in England like bear baiting and dogfighting, in which audiences enjoyed the spectacle of watching animals kill each other. The Sadler Report did lead to reforms passed by Parliament that ameliorated the worst of the child labor excesses that were being practiced in England at this time. Still, the report underscores what life was like for those at the bottom of English society at the time. The Industrial Revolution had pulled huge numbers of English into the middle class and given them greatly improved lifestyles. But there were still huge numbers on the bottom of British society that lived lives of poverty and misery. Capitalism had done nothing to help their lot. And this is a theme we're going to start seeing now that we're in the industrial era. Through the medieval era, most of life took place on the local level. Horrendous atrocities could be perpetrated against members of local outgroups. With industrialized economies, life was no longer local. But things happened on much more of a mass scale. Now we're going to be seeing outgroups such as the children of the poorest British subclass being treated abysmally on a more massive scale. Adam Smith wrote at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. I think it's clear from his writings that if someone had interviewed him about the lot of the poor at the end of the Industrial Revolution, he would have said that government and the industrialists had a duty to mitigate the harshest impacts of the new capitalist economy on the poorest. It's a given that in a capitalist economy, the most able will rise to the top. The corollary to this is that there will always be the least able inhabiting the bottom rung in a capitalist system. Slowly, politicians like Michael Sadler would work to help soften the harsh sting of capitalism on this bottom rung. But the harshness of this system has never been truly eased for those at the bottom of society. Your read for this week is The Wealth of Nations. You'll learn a lot about English history and commerce on the eve of the Industrial Revolution, and you'll learn some good economics that's still relevant today. But mostly, it's worth the read just to see how a mind like Adam Smith's analyzes a broad array of data to come up with a coherent theory. Okay, The Wealth of Nations is 950 pages. On the off chance that that's not going to fit into your reading schedule this week, read Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. It'll give you a good view into middle-class English life during this period. And Dickens is a great writer. It's always worth reading his books. Enjoy. See you next week.